what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Recently, we have been covering the story of the Kane brothers, Jeremy and Zach, as well as Mark Harper, three teens convicted of the 2002 murder of a man by the name of Jimmy Hill. It's a crime the boys have always maintained with self-defence and for the past 21 years have been fighting to clear their names. Hello, is that Mr. Brooks? Yeah, speaking. Hello, sir. It's Jack Lawrence here, the uh, journalist from Australia doing this story on the boys. Yeah. Oh, hey. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, sir. How are you? Well, I'm trying to get through. Trying to get through, yeah. (laughs) As part of the Kane boys' efforts to clear their names, they would hire a private investigator. This is something that I hear a lot, especially in the United States, when it comes to people trying to find evidence to help prove their innocence. Of course, once a person is convicted in the eyes of the law and police involvement, it is case closed. And the files are put away, never to be looked at again. So people in situations like Jeremy and Zach's will look to others with backgrounds in investigation in order to keep their case alive and to investigate avenues that police may have overlooked in the first place. People like Mr Brooks. Uh, Well, my name's JD Brooks. I... uh spent 23 years in the United States Marines, and I spent another 15 years with the Atlanta Police Department. When I left the Atlanta Police Department and taken retirement there, I went into the private sector of private investigation, uh, private security, and things of that nature. And two years ago, um, I kind of got approached by uh, one of the Kane brothers' parents wanting to talk to me about the possibility of looking into their case. And that's kind of where I got involved in. 
As Mr Brooks mentions, he's not only a former Marine but also ex-law enforcement, a man with decades of experience investigating crime and locking up his own fair share of bad guys. However, this time, he's not looking to lock anyone up. Instead, he's trying to get two boys out of prison. Mr Brooks would, of course, initially be paid for his work on this case, but after discovering some information that troubled him, he remains working on this case in his spare time for free. I'm assuming you hadn't heard much about their story prior to getting involved in it? Yeah, prior to uh, the fact that they got caught up in that, um, I had never heard of it. Uh, The thing is, is when it happened... I was working in Atlanta, and I would have never had the opportunity to really know much about what was going on in Birmingham at the time. So when the the Kane parents came to you and asked you if you'd be uh, willing to sort of do some looking into it, what's what's the first process for you when being approached about something like that? Because I no doubt, obviously, this happens on a regular basis, being a private investigator. So, so what's your first port, port of call, so to speak, as to sort of looking into this situation? Well, the first thing I did was I asked for copies of um, every record that they had, every court transcript, uh, medical records, anything that they had whatsoever that had um, anything to do with the case. Then I sat down, I spent a, several months basically reading through each and every page of the transcripts, going through the medical records of the gentleman who ended up deceased, and then I looked into the kids' backgrounds, and then I looked into his background, trying to get a, a feel for what type of person they were when it occurred and what type of person he was when the incident occurred. I think I've probably got mo- most of what you've uh, got, and it's a hell of a lot of uh, information and a hell of a lot of paperwork there. So once you sort of started reading through all of that, what were your first initial thoughts when you were looking at the, this case? Well, my first initial thoughts when I read through the whole case was that the boys' attorneys did not do their job. And the reason I said that is because they did not put them on the stand. And when you don't put somebody on the stand who's claiming self-defense, how can a jury ever get a feel for why you thought you needed to defend yourself in the manner that you did? Yeah. yeah. A jury has to have something to compare itself to, and their attorneys gave them absolutely nothing. And I went through there very carefully, and they rarely objected to anything. Uh, they allowed a lot of things to go into evidence that there was absolutely no reason for it to be admitted into evidence. And then I started looking a little harder at the judge, and that raised some concerns for me too. We've sort of covered it briefly in the show, talking about that judge and, and the fact that um, he obviously had some form of relationship with his family that uh, Mr. Hill came from. You know, it's on record that he was campaigning in their store or using their store in, uh, as a place to sort of meet uh, his public, so to speak, and, and shook people's hands and introduced himself. So to be able to do that and to be able to have that space in which to do that, you must have a relationship with the person who owns the store, obviously. Yeah, he, so he had established a relationship with that judge, and when they established the relationship, and then that judge also uh, was on multiple cases of domestic violence involving uh, James Hill. And he managed to get a lot of them dismissed, yet when I read the police reports, there was absolutely no way those should have ever been dismissed. There should have been some some portability for it because it was really, uh, there was incidences there where he pointed weapons at people. Yep. There were actually incidents where he uh, broke his wife's fingers. 
beat her in the face with his fist. Uh, there was a lot of things that, you know, somehow or the other come up dismissed and it should have never happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I've read the same reports as well. And, uh, yeah, anywhere where the, that judge was involved, uh, the case always ended up the same way, as you said, dismissed. And reading the, right. police, reading the police reports, especially on the one where the police arrived and where he was apparently punching his wife with a closed fist, as well as his um, stepson at the time, uh, he was also fighting with him. It's quite a violent altercation um, that you wouldn't expect to just be dismissed. Yeah, that's true. And see, I pulled records and went back and done a deep history dive on him and found that the gentleman had a large, long record up in Chicago before he moved to Alabama. Yeah. He had all kinds of domestic violence incidents. He had a case, like I said, at one point where he pulled up alongside of a guy and pointed at 357 at him and then drove off, you know, just to terrify the person. Yeah. I'd like to reiterate here what I have already said in a previous episode where we discussed Mr Hill's past. This is not some witch hunt or attempt at dragging a dead man's name through the mud. This is also certainly not a case of suggesting that, oh, well, he wasn't a nice guy, so Mr Hill deserved what happened to him. This is the defence arguing that the prosecution's picture that they painted of a family man who was trying to de-escalate a situation and retreat from three teenagers who would end up beating him to death seems unlikely when you look at the facts of this man's past. That's absolutely true. And here, the other part of that is that he ran better part of 75 yards to where the boys were. They didn't go to him. He went to the boys and when they got out of the car, their first thoughts were that it was not him. They didn't realize it was even Jimmy Hill. They thought it was the stepson that Mark Harper had the issue with and thought he was coming up there. So that was not a big deal. But then they realized it was him. And then when they seen that Jimmy Hill reached down and picked up a rather large piece of lumber and was coming up the street with that, that's when they armed themselves with the bats. And then you've got the two eyewitnesses. You've got, uh, obviously, one of the boys' former friends. What did you find out about Chris Stan uh, Stano? Did you speak with him? Yeah, I spoke with him. It was just for a very few minutes. Uh, his family wasn't there, so he and I stood inside of his house and talked. He kind of stood to his ground, what he saw that day. But the problem with it was that it didn't make any sense. Stano told one story to some people, then turned around and went to court and told another story after he admitted that he was going to say whatever it took to stay out of prison. And currently, Mr. Chris Stano is wanted for fraud. Yeah, that gives me the feeling that he, as an adult, he didn't get any more truthful than I think that he was as a child. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. What about Paul Gilliland? Let's talk about Paul Gilliland. Of course, um, you know, when he was first questioned on scene, it was about a two-sentence statement, and obviously as time went on, that statement grew and grew and grew. Details changed. Um, what did you find out about Mr. Gilliland? What I found out about Paul Gilliland is that he lied that day. And the reason I say that is because he gave a total of five different accounts for what actually occurred. Another aspect of Mr. Gilliland's testimony that bothered Mr. Brooks and certainly raised my eyebrows was the fact that he jumps from his porch, rolls down a hill and hurts his ankle yet is still seemingly able to give an accurate account of what happens throughout the entirety of this altercation. When he jumped over, and one thing that never came out in court, yet I found out about it later, was that when he hit the ground, he twisted his ankle, and then he rolled down that hill. I mean, just rolled all the way down to the street level. So any claims that he said that he saw while he, after he jumped would have to be false. You're not going to be able to see what's going on way off to your left when you're rolling down a large hill and holding a loaded gun at the same time. And also, I mean, you know, his, his accounts of I mean, who, who hit Mr. Hill and how many times, that changed as well. It started off, he, he claimed that Jeremy hit Mr. Hill in the leg and then also in the head. And then he first of all said he didn't think Zach hit Mr. Hill at all. Um, obviously, we know that changes. You know, he stated that he saw um, one person sitting in a Camaro and didn't get out of the Camaro. And as we know, no one was sitting in the Camaro. The, he's talking about, obviously, Chris Stano, who was sitting in a truck. Now, people might think, well, that's a, a, small, that's a small thing. But it really, it just shows that, you know, he, his account of things isn't accurate. Well, the thing, another part of that is, is that the police done a illegal lineup. They should have put each one of the boys in a lineup with similar looking subjects and let him pick out who he saw that day. Yeah. Instead, what they've done was they brought just the three boys in and said, are these the ones? And then he's like, yeah, well, yeah, it is. But then I'm not sure if you found out about the part where Paul Gillian was kind of halfway interviewed by two females and inside his statement to them was Jimmy Hill was carrying what looked like to him to be a four by four. Yeah. Now, when he went to trial, he said Jimmy Hill wasn't carrying anything and didn't have anything in his hands. Yet he told them to him, he thought it was a four by four that he was carrying, which would be about the size of a piece of the garden lumber, like the boys were trying to describe. But they never, like I said, they never had the opportunity to tell the jury anything about what they saw because their attorneys told them, no, 
you can't testify. Yet they wanted to testify. I, I've also um, I've watched and listened, obviously, to that recording with Mr. Gilliland, and uh, uh, he also I found what something else was interesting. What he said was, he said he'd like to help the boys uh, any way he could, but he was worried about perjuring himself. Uh, and the only way you're going to be worried about perjuring yourself is if you lied on the stand. Yes, that's absolutely correct. I mean, why would you why would you worry about you know committing perjury if you told the truth to begin with? Yeah. You wouldn't. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, look, you're a, you're a former, you know, you're a former military man. You're a former police officer. Um, you know, you've seen the worst of the worst in society, and you know, you've been involved in these situations. There'd be a lot of people that listen to their story and go, "Well, you get what you get. If you jumped out your car, you should have just driven away. You should have left." In your opinion, as someone who's been in these situations so many times and seen criminals doing bad things. Why are you so adamant and wanting to help these boys? Because, oh, like I said, I don't believe they got a fair trial to begin with. They're, I believe that they were thrown under the bus by their attorney. The judge on the case should have never been appointed to it, considering he had a relationship with the deceased. And then you, there were some of the things that the prosecution did that really raised my eyes. I can almost see how the whole thing unfolded, because when I talked to Mark Harper, he told me very plainly he did not have any intention or ill will with Jimmy Hill. His problem was with his stepson. The way the events unfolded was that Jimmy Hill grabbed Mark Harper and... As far as I'm concerned, it was a sexual assault. When you grab a male and stick your tongue in his mouth, and then you shove him back into the ground. Now, according to the two boys, which they never got a chance to tell the jury, but if you look at the way everything came down, I believe what they said. Because I put myself in the same situation, I'd have done the same thing. There's no way under the sun I would have let him take something and smash Mark Harper laying on the ground with a four by four. What Jeremy did was just try to get him off of him. So he tapped him. He did not swing it hard. There was no bruising left from where he hit him on the arm and then on the leg. And then that turned Jimmy Hill's attention on him. So when he started after him, Zachary, the youngest boy, only 15, acted in defense of his brother. No, you're not going after my brother now. So he hits him just twice, and then they all run off. They really did not have any idea that Jimmy Hill was in as bad a shape as it turned out that he was. So they actually went home, told their parents what happened, and they went down to file a police report against Jimmy Hill attacking them. And instead, they came after the boys. I can think back when I was 15 and 16, I didn't realize what the long-term results of something I might stupidly do in one day until it really happened. Now, that really, that happened in the manner that it did. It seemed like everything unfolded in a way that the boys explained it to me. And then when I read the reports, and that seemed to substantiate a lot of it too. But once I went through that, then I started reading Jimmy Hill's medical records I found some even more distressing things. What did you uh, find out about his medical situation? Well, the thing is, Jimmy Hill had a myriad of issues. And one of those issues were, you know, he had serious medical problems to begin with. He was diabetic. He had seizures. He had a lot of things going on. And when he went in, the doctors treated him correctly. They used a drug called Manitol. 
Now, if you look up mannitol, you'll find that it's administered to somebody to transfer heavy fluid buildup from one end of the body down to the other, or you can move it from the bottom up to the top, depending on how you administer it. Well, they administered mannitol, and it had an adverse effect, according to the medical record. Now, that meant when they were trying to reduce the fluid on Jimmy Hill's brain, what they actually did was cause it to increase the fluid around his brain. So had they not administered the mannitol, who's to say that Jimmy Hill would not have survived the incident? And I'm not blaming the doctors. The doctors, I believe, tried to do the correct thing. It's a, that's a normal thing to do is to administer that specific drug. But I have spoken to several doctors and they said, yes, that could have been a contributing factor to the fact that he did not survive the incident. You know, I was talking to the boys about how they get back into court and how they potentially get out of the situation that they're in. And I mean, Jeremy is of the opinion the only way that this is going to happen is if someone comes out who made a statement that was coerced by the prosecution. Um, do you see that ever happening? Honestly, I doubt it. And I really strongly doubt that the one that would do it would be have to be uh, Chris Stano. And we already know, based on his past and based on his present, that Christopher Stano cannot be trusted with anything that he tells you. I don't have a lot of um, confidence that Chris Stano will ever come out there and tell the truth, even though he told um, the boy's parents the day that it happened, because that's where he went to their house and um, told his father, told the boy's father that they were just trying to protect themselves. All they were doing was defending themselves. But when he went to court, he made it look like that, you know, they just arbitrarily attacked an innocent man. But, you know, I teach courses in self-defense. And one of the courses I teach in the use of deadly force is when you, you can, if you have somebody that is so much bigger than you that attacks you physically, you may have to result to deadly force to protect yourself because you can't take a 6'4", 220-pound man and having face off with a five foot eight, hundred and thirty pound boy. That would be no different than, you know, two equal sized men, but one man has a gun. There's no way they could survive the attack. There are other ways to get this trial probably reopened. But the thing is, every time you try to do it, you have to have something that was not presented originally in court. Yeah. And the one thing that was not originally presented in court was their testimony that and their desire to testify. And when they appealed on that basis, the appeals court said, no, you should have went ahead and testified or something of that nature. And I'm going, well, they were told that they couldn't. And then when they asked then when they were asking to testify and tell the jury their side of it. And if you look at today's world, 20 years ago, if I had taken three black kids and put them in there and had an all-white jury convict them, that would have been an instant turnaround. But yet you had three white kids with an all-black jury who you know, convicted them, and they didn't have anybody in there that even so much as represented their own race. Today, you couldn't get away with that. Yes, because it's supposed to be a jury of your peers, you know, that exactly. are you know, like you. Yeah, and I'm not saying that the jurors didn't do their job. They 
did what they thought was right. They made choices. I spoke to several of the jurors. Some of them said they were up in the air. One indicated that he felt like, well, the only reason you hit somebody in the head with a bat is because you intend to kill them. And I asked him, I said, well, then what if you thought that the person that you were swinging at was about to be attacked by a man with a large man with a four by four on your own brother? I said, would you have done anything to stop him or would you just let him kill your brother? He kind of looked at me funny and he said, well, I didn't think of it that way at the time. I said, well, maybe you should have. It's always tough being a juror and I wouldn't want to be sitting in that seat. I used to think that it'd be interesting to be on a jury, but after doing the job that I do now, I, I just wouldn't want that responsibility. I don't think it was just, it's, it's just, no, it's, it's intense. They won't put me on a jury. No, well, you know, no, they won't yeah, put me on one either. They wouldn't put me in the jury. My background and everything that I know and all the jobs that I've done in my lifetime, they'd immediately disqualify me because they'd feel like I would take over the jury and it would be my decision what happened. You have one minute remaining. I'd like to say a big thank you to Mr Brooks, who, as I've mentioned, is working on the boy's case for free in his spare time and is so unsettled by the information that he's uncovered, has in fact also started his own YouTube channel where he outlines everything he has discovered about this case. A link to this is in the show notes of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. 